Good morning, everyone. So glad to be um, here this morning. I acted like, I was about to act like I wasn't normally here on a Sunday morning. I'm, I'm always here on a Sunday morning. Um, but I'm glad to be with each of you this morning, this holiday weekend, right? Super fun. And like um, Douglas said, we have been in this series, the summer series, in the Minor Prophets. Who here feels like you've learned something this summer about the Minor Prophets? Yeah, me too. It's been really cool, right? Some stories that we don't maybe often visit, some things that we don't often look into. And this week, we are going to be diving into the story of Jonah. And I promise that might be my only nautical pun. We'll find out. Um, But since um, this is a holiday weekend and some people are traveling and it's supposed to be fun, I thought we'd have some fun together this morning. Y'all here for that? Yes. Have some interaction this morning? Yes. Okay. So, when I say the book of Jonah, what immediately comes to mind? Whales. Whales, yes. Or a big fish, a sea creature, something of that nature. And you're not wrong. This is a story about a guy and a big fish, but it's a lot more than that. God has so much to speak to us as we dig into the story of Jonah this morning. And since you all, most of you, there was a resounding whale that came, it seems like some of you know a little bit about the story of Jonah. Is that right? Yeah? Do you think you all know enough that you might be able to help me tell the story of Jonah this morning? Oh, oh, a little, mm, you're not sure, you're not sure? Okay, well, I want y'all's help this morning to tell the story of Jonah, because we're going to have fun, and I'm going to do it classroom style. And the first person who yells out the right answer gets candy. Yes, there is candy in this basket, and I'm going to attempt to throw it to you. But I also have really bad aim, and I'm not good at throwing. So you all will have to look out for each other and help each other and be honest about who really deserves the candy and duck when necessary, okay? You got that? All right, so before we dig into chapter one of Jonah and you all help me tell the story, I want to kind of give two points of context about the story of Jonah because we all seem to know a little bit about it. So I just wanna make sure we're on the same page as we dig into this story. The first is that the genre of the story of Jonah is widely debated, but I don't want us to get hung up on that this morning. There are scholars that debate, is Jonah to be taken literally? Jonah was a historical figure. We know that for certain. So there are some people who think, yes, this really happened. Jonah, he did all these things. He was on the ship. He was swallowed by a whale. We're supposed to trust and know that all of that is true. There are other people who think that it is to be considered satire or parable, just like how Jesus told parables. And we're supposed to look at the imagery in the story of Jonah and learn a lesson. Now, what I want you all to do with me, if you're able, is just throw everything, all your preconceived notions about the story of Jonah out the window. I want you to remember the facts because you get candy for the facts. But all of your feelings about the book of Jonah, whether that be from what you were taught growing up or from the VeggieTales movie, whatever it was, what you think you know about Jonah, I want you to throw it out the window and just enter into the mystery of this story a little bit and what God wants to teach us through it. The second thing is that I think we need to shift our perspective a little bit. We've been learning about all these minor prophets, all these different stories, but the story of Jonah is a little bit different. All of the other minor prophets are mostly quotes, direct quotes from God speaking through the prophet to his people. The book of Jonah is different because it's a story. It's a story about God relating to a prophet. So us, we're disciples of Jesus, and because of that, we're both followers of God, but also messengers for the gospel. 
And so today, as we're hearing the story of Jonah, I want us to put ourselves in Jonah's shoes and shift our perspective from a follower of Jesus to one that is bringing the gospel, a messenger of God's good word. Can we do that together? Y'all with me? Okay, awesome. So let's start in Jonah chapter one. And if you have your Bibles, this is in fact an open book quiz. So please use them. Use your Bible to know the answers. And remember to be ready because I have bad aim. Okay, first, Jonah was considered a what? Prophet. Oh, no. Oh, no. Aaron, look alive. (laughs) Give it to Travis. Okay. I'm going to stop there. I know y'all are jonesing for your candy, but I'm going to stop there for just a second because I want to make sure we're all on the same page about what a prophet is. I'm not going to belabor the point because we've been learning about prophets. So we all know that prophets were messengers of God's word. But what I want us to be on the same page about this morning is that all of the prophets, all of scripture was ultimately pointing us to Jesus. And we know this because Jesus tells us that. In Luke chapter 24, this is after Jesus has been resurrected, he's talking to two of his apostles, but they don't know that it's him, which is really ironic because they're talking about him to him, but they don't know that it's him. And they're speculating about the death and the resurrection of Jesus and wondering if it could have really happened. And Jesus interjects and he says in Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So all of the prophets, every single one, Jesus tells us, point to him. Just keep that in mind as we're continuing continuing through Jonah this morning. So God, he talks to Jonah. This is how chapter one starts. He speaks to Jonah and he tells him to do something. He tells him to go to a city and bring the message that he's going to bring. Does anyone know the name of that city? Ooh, I heard it over here first. Kent, was that you? Jacob. Oh, I'm so sorry, Jacob. I'm so sorry. See, I I warned y'all. I warned twice. Oh, it was a a soccer, a football move. Football. Okay. Um, That's what my coworkers would tell me to say. Okay. And does Jonah, as an Israelite, have a reason to not want to go to Nineveh? That was a throwaway. Of course, he doesn't. He doesn't want to go there, right? And because the people of Nineveh are known to be wicked and cruel, and they're enemies of the Israelite people. So what does he decide to do? Yes. Good. Oh, look, I can do this one. Yeah. Oh, he runs away. And does anyone know the city that he decides to run away to? Oh, yes. I saw you say it. I saw your lips move. Tarshish. That... Oh, getting better. Tarshish, and I don't know about y'all, but like trying to say that word, I felt like there's too many S's in my mouth, you know, Tarshish, okay. Anyway, so that is where he runs away to. And while, he doesn't just run, he sails. He gets on a boat and he tries to sail away to the city that has too many S's in it to say. And what does God do while he's on this boat? Storm, ooh, who said it? Be honest, guys. Back here, ooh, okay, okay. Jesse, it's not gonna happen. Watch out, Kim. Okay, good job. Okay, um, um, this is sort of working out, sort of a little bit of a mess, but it's great. It's fun. We're having fun this weekend. So he, um, sorry, where was I even? I got so distracted with storm. So he sends a storm. And while this storm is happening, what is Jonah doing? 
sleeping. Yes, I'm going to just throw it to John over here because I heard his voice the loudest. I know he wasn't first. I'm sorry. Everyone forgive me. There's more candy for those who feel bitter toward me in the end. He was sleeping, and the captain gets so mad at Jonah for sleeping that he goes and finds him, brings him up on deck, and he's like, what have you been doing? We've all been praying to our gods. Maybe if you pray to your God, this storm will stop. And then all of the people on the ship, all of the sailors decide to cast lots to see who's responsible for this terrible storm, which is basically in our present day, like drawing the short straw. Like whose fault is this? And the lot falls on Jonah. And they're like, what up, man? What's going on? Why are you making this storm come? And Jonah is like, okay, guys, confession. I'm trying to run away from my God. The storm's clearly from him. Throw me overboard. And the sailors are like, we can't do that. If your God's making the storm happen, he'll kill us if we kill you. And then Jonah's like, no, 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 guys, just do it. And they don't want to, but then the storm gets worse and worse and worse. And finally, the sailors are like, well, yes, we just kind of have to do it. So they pray and hope that they're forgiven for murdering Jonah, and they toss him overboard. And then what happens? What happens first? Storm stops, that's right. And then what happens? Swallowed by a fish, who said it? Someone over here said it. Oh, oh, Cheryl, okay, watch out, Harden and... Carolyn, okay, that sort of worked. Okay, so we're gonna stop there with chapter one, leave you on a little bit of a cliffhanger. What happens? He was just swallowed by a fish. That's crazy. I mean, if there's no more chapters, like he's just dead, right? Um, Because that's what happens when you get swallowed by a fish. Okay, so now I'm gonna let you in on a little bit of a secret. I'm a bit of a nerd. And by a bit of a nerd, I mean a really big nerd. I actually like to say that I'm a recovering nerd. But when I was in high school, I got all A's, I did the AP classes, I was editor-in-chief of the newspaper staff, yes. My senior superlative was most involved, and that went like, meant like in all the nerdy clubs, right? But I did all of this in middle school and high school because I wanted to go to the college of my dreams. I felt like I deserved, after all of my hard work, to go wherever I wanted. And I was not going to go to a state school. You would not find me going to a college in the state of Georgia, which that was high school alley talking. There are plenty of great schools in the state of Georgia. But at the time, I thought that was my worst fate imaginable, was to have to stay here and go to college. So I applied to exactly three schools, Wheaton in Illinois, Pepperdine in California, and Georgia College and State University in Milledgeville, Georgia. Yeah, go Bobcats. <laughs> right? Which might give away this story a little bit. But... I traveled to Wheaton, and I knew that was supposed to, where I was supposed to go. I knew it in my bones that that was my school. And like I said, I deserved this. I'd worked my butt off. So I told God, yes, I told him, that if he got me into this school, I would know that that's where I was supposed to go. And then the big envelope came, the one that said, yes, Allie, you got into Wheaton College early admission, and you're moving to Illinois. And I was like, that's it. I'm set. But... The sad truth about being a nerd is that behind you, there's another nerd. And that nerd plays concert violin, and they're an Olympic athlete, and they cured leprosy or something like that. And those nerds are the ones that get all of the scholarship money, not the normal nerds. So somehow, I found myself sitting at freshman orientation in the middle of South Georgia, wondering how I had gotten there. This wasn't me. This wasn't what I did. This wasn't what happened to me. I had plans, and this was not what I deserved. Well, Jonah had plans too, and
and he thought he knew what he deserved from the Lord. He was a good Jewish man. He had been given this fancy title of prophet, and not just prophet, but prophet to the king. Because if you didn't know this, Jonah is actually mentioned in the Bible once before the story of Jonah even happens. In 2 Kings chapter 14, we learn a little bit more about Jonah's story. Verses 23 through 25. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joseph, king of Judah, Jeroboam, Jeroboam's the important name. There's lots of names here. I'm going to point out the important one. Son of Josh, Jehoash, king of Israel, became, so Jeroboam became king in Smyrna. So not Smyrna, Samaria. And he reigned 41 years. And Jeroboam, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one, Jeroboam, who restored the boundaries of Israel from Labohamoth to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, Jonah, the prophet of gath Hepher. So King Jeroboam was considered one of the worst, if not the worst, kings of Israel. But Jonah prophesied that through him, the reign of Israel, the boundaries of Israel will expand. And he was right. He prophesied correctly. And for Jonah, this had to be this huge moment of success. I mean, up to this point, this is probably the crowning achievement of his life. And he could not wait to hear what God was going to do with him next. I mean, he was a prophet to the king of Israel. Surely his next assignment would be even greater. And then God told Jonah something that must have shocked him. He said, Go to the place that you don't want to go and do the thing that you want to do the very least. I think we've all kind of heard a message similar like that from God before, right? So what does Jonah do? He, this is not a candy question. This is a rhetorical question. He decides to hide from God in the most dramatic way possible by sailing away to Tarshish. And yes, this was a real city, but that's not really what it meant here because this was a phrase that people used, kind of like how we say Timbuktu. Jonah was literally taking a ship and just trying to go as far away from God as possible to the ends of the earth. But the question we have here is why? Why is Jonah doing this? God has shown him provision and favor in the past. So why, when there's a little bit of a turning off, would Jonah decide to run from God? And it's because he forgot about the first truth that we are going to learn about the life of Jonah, which is that obedience is all about trust. I read a quote this week that said, God only misses the mark when we make the mark for him. I'm going to say that again. God only misses the mark when we make the mark for him. Like I said, Jonah had a plan for his life. He knew what he wanted to do. He wanted to help his people, God's chosen people of Israel, expand their territory and grow. And when God told him to go to Nineveh, he really felt like God had missed the mark. Like he was like, God's got to be wrong here. How many times has this been us? Thinking that God has missed the mark in our own lives. I mean, if you look at my list of prayer requests, it would include a job for my husband that he's been waiting on for five years. One that would help us travel and maybe buy a house one day and maybe save up for our daughter's college. Or if I'm really, really dreaming big, help me fill my gas tank all the way up. Y'all know what I'm talking about because it's 2022. Am I right? But my prayer request would also include beautiful dreams for this city. The way that I would hope that God would use our Grace Marietta family to bring healing and transformation and growth to us in this room and to the people around us. 
And when provision in my life doesn't look the way that I expect it to, we were just talking about this, when the promises aren't being answered, when we're not seeing God making a way in our own life, we begin to think that our life is wrong. Discontentment grows inside of us because we look around and we're like, this isn't right. These are not the marks that I made for the Lord. He's not hitting them. So something must be wrong. God must be doing the wrong thing. And the first question that we have to ask ourselves when we look at this story of Jonah is, will we have enough faith, just like Douglas was talking about when he read that psalm, will we have enough faith to trust God that his ways are better than our ways, that the promises he's given us, they're not lies, but he might fulfill them in a way that we could have never imagined. But this was clearly not a lesson that Jonah had learned yet because he tried to run from God, which is actually helpful for us, for us because we get to keep learning from his life. We get to see what happens next because we, let's be honest, we haven't all figured this out either. So we get to learn what it looks like when Jonah runs from God. But what's even crazier than trying to run from God is that God wouldn't let him. God would not let him run away. He sent a storm. He sent a whale to swallow Jonah, but with a purpose. Because the truth is that God's plans and pursuits of us for our life don't depend on our obedience to him. Yeah, he wants us to be obedient, but he's not depending on our actions to continue pursuing us. The Bible is full of people who had to who felt like they had to run away from God or avoid God and that that was a better choice than what God was asking them to do. Moses ran away to Egypt after he killed someone because he couldn't face his own nature. And even when God came to him in a burning bush and spoke to him, he still felt ill-equipped. He was still like, no, God, I'm not the one. I know you're talking to me through a plant, but it's not me. And so, but God didn't say, okay, you're right, you're ill-equipped. He then sent help to him so that he could continue picking Moses as the one who was going to bring his people out of Egypt. Elijah was afraid for his life. He was being pursued and chased. So he ran, and he stopped, and he was hiding in this cave, and he told God that he was done. He's like, I'm done. I'm done with your ministry. I'm not doing this anymore. I can't. And in a really funny story about God, God recognizes that Elijah just needed like a snack and a nap, and he'd be good to go. So an angel brings this, this provision to Elijah, because God's not gonna let him turn away from his ministry. He provides for him, he pursues him. And then he goes on to have that moment, that whisper moment with God where he gets to experience his presence because God wouldn't let him give up. I'm sure you can think of so many other moments in scripture or in your own life where it felt like it would be an easier choice to run from God or avoid God, to not have to hear those words that he's speaking over your life. But here is the beautiful thing that we're learning in Jonah. God doesn't want robots who are just gonna carry out his mission. He wanted Jonah. He wanted Elijah. He wanted Moses. He wants me. He wants you. We are the ones that he is calling, and he's willing to send the storms and even the whales to redirect us so that he can show us the more beautiful vision and picture that he has for each of our lives. Which brings us to chapter two. We're gonna keep learning about that vision. Y'all ready? Chapter two. How many days and nights was Jonah in the fish? Three. I love how John was like, I'm not going to speak. I'm going to send a strong message. I'm going to send it strong. And I, I really don't want to hit Ruby. Uh. Oh, okay. Yeah, there you go. You got it. If you can't get it. Oh, look at that. Ash is helping. I love it. See, 
This is where we're, this is real community. Giving each other the candy that fell to the ground. Okay, and what does Jonah do, or what do we get to know that Jonah does in the fish? Pray, yes. Was that you, Daniel? Yeah, yeah. Don't be shy about it. Claim your candy. Um, and then what happens after Jonah prays? Yes, that's right. I somehow, you, this is number two. Maybe you can share with someone. Share with a friend and a neighbor. Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. So that's chapter two. Jonah's in the fish, three days, three nights, prays, he gets spit out. Now, most of chapter two is Jonah's prayer while he's in the fish, but it's not just any prayer because we get a glimpse into how Jonah is feeling in his darkest hour. I'm just gonna say this has to be his darkest hour. If there's something more, I don't even wanna know about it because he's in a fish, okay? So let me read it for us because I think it's beautiful. Verses two through nine. I called to the Lord in my distress and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol and you heard my voice. When you threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. And I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. Then you raised me from, you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, I don't know if you feel like this, but again, veggie tale, Sunday school. What I was taught growing up is that like, Jonah just had to sit in a fish for three days. Like he was just doing his fish time out. And God was like, okay, like you've been in the fish long enough, like time to go on to dry land. No, that is not what was happening. Jonah was being brought to the brink of death. He was inside of a living animal. Who knows how terrifying that would have been, how hard that would have been, what that would have really felt like. Some scholars believe that Jonah was actually killed because you couldn't survive that. And God brought him back to life and spit him onto ground. That's how close to death or actually dead, he was in this scenario. And he prays this prayer to God from this near-death experience. And the truth that we learn from this peak into Jonah's valley moment is that transformation requires diving through the deep. So in this prayer, Jonah calls out to God from his darkest moment. And I'm just gonna assume that all of us have been there. We've all had these moments. We've sat in the pit and we have felt the waters pressing in, and we have felt the suffocation of deep, deep pain. And in that moment, we cried out to God, just like Jonah did, and we cried out for hope and healing and mercy, the the kind that had to be supernatural if it was ever gonna bring us back into the light. And even though we've all found ourselves in the valley for various reasons, maybe because of what someone else did, or because of tragedy, or like Jonah, because of our own choices, We've all just wanted one thing, for God to take away the pain. We wanted it gone. We wanted it removed from us. We wanted to be out of the fish, out of the valley. But God's mercy for us exceeds anything that we could imagine because he doesn't want to just bring us out of the pit. He wants to transform us in the process. As we are squeezed and pressed, he wants to produce something new and something beautiful in each of us and take our ashes and our sorrow and turn it into something beautiful. 
He wants to grow us into our best, most redemptive and healed versions of ourselves, so that we get to experience the fullness of life that he has prepared for us. And some of, for some of us, this can sit a little bit weird because we don't like to think about God like this. We don't like to think of God as the one who literally threw him overboard so that he would have to go through this because he was a disobedient. We don't like to think of a God that would throw his disobedient prophet into the depths of death just to teach him a lesson. And just like Jonah couldn't wrap his head around the idea of this mission that God was calling him to, sometimes it's hard for us to wrap our head around the fact that our faith might involve pain, that hope and healing and hardship and darkness all add up to who God is calling us to be and who he's created us to be. We have to walk through all of those things to become the fullest version of ourselves. And, and um, the beautiful truth about this is that God would rather bring you through Sheol, through the pit of death, than leave you behind. He would rather throw you through the fire than watch you sit in stagnation. He would rather refine and wrestle with the hard-hearted than choose anyone else. That's how he feels about us. And God's grace and mercy does not stop when our obedience does. It is a wild grace that chases after us. It pursues us with storms and with whales so that we can experience all that God has for us. Hebrews 12, seven through 11 says it like this. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So after God, after God, after Jonah goes through this moment of refinement in the pit, now he can do the work that God's been refining him for, which brings us to chapters three and four. So God is like, okay, let's rewind, start again, let's try this again. And when, God, when Jonah is spit up onto dry land, God tells him the exact same thing again. Go to where? Nineveh, who said it? Who wants it? Oh, Todd, yes, Cheryl and Todd, getting all the candy. Um, and preach the message that I have prepared for you. So God, not God, I keep mixing up God and Jonah, guys. Whew. Jonah goes to Nineveh. He actually listens to God. He's obedient, like he said he would be when he was in the belly of the whale. And he preaches this kind of weird message. Actually, we don't know what he says. I don't believe that this is all that he says. But he walks around the city and he says, in 40 days, the city will be destroyed. And the people of Nineveh, do they repent? Yes. Who said it? Raise your hand. Be honest. Oh, Lauren. Yay. Okay, you ready? Oh, what? Wow. Okay, that was good. I'm shocked. Okay, they repented. Even the king of Nineveh gave the speech that you can read about in chapter three, all about how even the animals are going to repent. That's how bad we feel. That's what he said. So the whole city repents, and that should be the end of the story, right? I mean, yay, happy ending, everyone's saved, and everyone's happy, right? No, except Jonah, that's right. Jonah is not happy. Now, another, ooh, that was bad. See, for every good one, there's a really bad one. Um, I'm going to let you in on a little uh, secret about me. I love a good twist. 
So movies, books, TV shows, anything that has an awesome twist, like I'm there for it. It'll become my new favorite thing. And because of that, you would think the story of Jonah should now be my favorite story because chapter four is very twisty. It's very twisty, right? Starting in chapter three, verse 10, and then we're gonna move into the beginning of chapter four. It says, God saw their actions, the repentant actions of Nineveh, that they had turned from their evil ways, So God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? This is why I fled towards Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So here we have two twists in the story of Jonah. The first is why he decided to run away from God. And the second is that he's mad about the mission of God. Now, I grew up learning about Jonah thinking that he fled because he was primarily scared. He was scared of the Ninevites. They were known to be really violent people. And also just that he didn't want to go. He didn't feel like it. He didn't like Nineveh, didn't want to go there. But this whole time, He left just because he didn't want to see God's mission completed. And here's the twist. He knew the whole time that it was going to be. He says he knew God's nature. He knew that this mission was going to be lived out. He knew that if he went to Nineveh, the people were going to repent. He was in on it with God the whole time. He just didn't like it. He didn't want it to happen. So he ran away from this plan so that these people wouldn't be saved. And this same man who was just crying out from inside of a fish, Lord, I'll do anything if you just save me, is now wishing he was dead instead of seeing the people that he disliked saved. I mean, that sounds crazy. But the most, the ultimate level of boldness here from Jonah is that he was convinced that he was right and God was wrong. In his heart, he felt like he really knew that. He thought that he could see the bigger, fuller picture better than God. He thought that because he was a prophet called by God who had all this knowledge of the scriptures and declared the word of God, that he had a fuller understanding of God's truth than God did. And God's even telling him like, hey, bro, you're wrong. Like, that's not the case. That's not true. But Jonah still thinks he's right. He thought that he knew what was going on. And yet again, we see ourselves in the story of Jonah because we all have things that we believe, truths that we have established. We think we know the truest truth in our own life and we're gonna live by it. And this might sound a little crazy, but we also think that we know best who deserves our time and our love and who deserves God's grace and God's mercy. And it might not be as dramatic as wishing we were dead rather than see someone come to the Lord, but in little ways every day, we pick how we are going to extend the grace of God. We do it when we pick who we spend our time with. Let's face it, most of us spend all of our free time with the same five people. We do it when we choose how to spend our money. We do it when we pass by someone who God is prompting us to pray for. We do it when we declare a family member beyond help or we say, "Eh, I'm done with that person. We do it when we say or post harmful things about someone that we've never even tried to get to know. We are currently living in really polarizing times. Times where we're picking platforms over people and condemnation over compassion and ego over empathy. And if we want to see grace abound in our day, then we're gonna have to start letting go of what we know to be truth and receive the truth, the better word, the truth that God has for our lives. 
Oh, thank you. That was nice. And again, what makes this, thank you, Lord, is what we should really say. But again, what makes this really confusing is that Jonah was just crying out to do this very work, and now he's mad that it's happened. But what we see in the life of Jonah in our own lives is that transformation is never linear. It takes time, and it can be painful, but the fruit of what God is trying to do through us will always be worth it. And yet again, in chapter 4, we see that God's response to Jonah in this little fit that he's throwing isn't to cast him aside or punish him. In chapter 4, verse 4, God asked Jonah a simple but complex question. Is it right for you to be angry? He extends Jonah an invitation to wrestle with him in this, to come to know the truth, to wrestle with God in this moment. But I guess God, or Jonah, decides not to take him up on it because what we see him do next in this really bizarre turn of events at the end of chapter four is he stomps off out of the city, goes and sits on a hill, and still waits for Nineveh's destruction to happen. He still believes maybe God will change his mind. Maybe he'll listen to me and what I know to be right, and he'll change his mind, and he'll still destroy the city. And then God, in his never-ending, and we're talking never-ending, mercy for Jonah causes a plant to grow up and shade him as he's just staring at his enemies, hoping they die. And then something interesting happens because the next day, yes, the next day, that's how long he's been sitting there, just watching, hoping. God sends a worm to chew up the plant, and then Jonah's just sitting there in the sun, and God sends a scorching wind to make him even hotter, and he's just sitting there pouting in the heat, in the hardship, because he would rather choose his own truth and be mad at God and hope that, these, and hope that he dies and that these people die rather than accept that God's plan might be better. And that's the end. Oh, sorry, that's not the end. Ooh, want to say one more thing. Um, then Jonah and God have an extremely profound conversation. This is how it ends. God asked Jonah, again, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. Die again, there he goes. And the Lord said, you cared about the plant which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in the night and perished in the night. So may, not, may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. And that is the end. So we don't get this pretty bow about Jonah's redemption and restoration, but we do get this beautiful word about how God sees his creation. Time and time again, we see Jonah choose his truth over God's way, his truth over God's love. And throughout this story, God is trying to show Jonah the bigger word that he has for him. And it ends in chapter four, that God created everything and he reigns over everything. And he determines, determines the plans for our life and he sets the marks for our life. And he is determined to chase down and show radical grace and love to all of his creation. Because the true prophetic word here in the book of Jonah is about abounding grace. And we find it in Jesus Remember how at the beginning I said all of the prophets point to the story of Jesus, right? Well, here we see that in the scripture because the only other times that Jonah is referenced in the Bible is by Jesus, twice in the New Testament, in Luke and in Matthew. And I'm gonna read the Matthew section for you. Matthew 12, 38 through 42 says, then some of the scribes and the Pharisees told Jesus, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he replied to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves a sign. Yet no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
Because just as Jonah was in the stomach of the sea creature for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment and condemn the people living today because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. But look, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, when I first read this passage about the sign of Jonah, I felt like it was much more confusing than the minor prophets that we've been reading. But I think we can learn something about it today that can speak over us. So what did the sign of Jonah mean and what does it mean for us? So after Jesus made the claim of being a disciple and he did all of these miracles, the scribes, the teachers of the law, were still looking for a sign that he was definitely who he claimed to be. The miracles weren't enough. They wanted a direct sign. But Jesus wasn't happy with this. He said, only a wicked generation asks for a sign. So I'm going to give you this, but I'm still going to give you this one sign, the sign of Jonah. And you might be wondering, why does Jesus, in the one sign that he gives people, compare himself to the most disobedient, distrustful, and selfish prophet in the Old Testament? Well, I think that Jesus is trying to say something a little different here. Because if we look closely at the story of Jonah, we can see that all the same characters were present in that story as they were in the time of Jesus. And Jonah isn't comp- Jesus isn't comparing himself to Jonah, but to something deeper. So, in the story of Jonah, Jonah represents the people of Israel and the teachers of the law. And Nineveh represents the Gentiles, everyone who was outside of the nation of Israel. And Jesus is not comparing himself to Jonah, but the work that God did through Jonah. Just as Jonah stood before God trying to claim that the Jewish tradition and the law was the final word on truth, the teachers of the law were trying to do that to Jesus. They truly believed that the Messiah would come just to put God's chosen people back on the throne. And here was Jesus, healing people on the Sabbath, eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners, forgiving women in public. He was stepping so far outside the boundaries of what the teachers of the law and the people of Israel thought their Messiah would look like. And this is why Jesus declared them a wicked generation, because he saw the same disobedience and pride and prejudice and hate in them as God saw in Jonah. And yet none of this stops Jesus from what he says next. Because he says that just as God called Jonah to die to himself in the belly of a whale, so would he die for us. And just as God kept Jonah in the belly of a whale for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man would be in the grave for three days and three nights before being resurrected to continue God's work. And real quick, I want to say something, because you all are probably doing, like, math, right? Some Bible math, like, wait, three days and three nights. We got Good Friday, we got Saturday, we got Easter, Sunday. It's only two days, maybe like two and a half, two nights. I just want to say, don't worry about that. Don't get caught up in the nuance of whether or not the days and hours add up. Trust me, you can do a Google search. The math all works out, okay? Don't worry, Jesus is who he says that he is. But ultimately, I don't think this is what Jesus was trying to say about the sign of Jonah. He wasn't trying to talk about days and nights in the grave because it doesn't matter how long Jonah was in the whale or Jesus was in the grave if nothing comes after. God did not send Jonah into the whale or Jesus into the grave for us to count hours. He did it so that obedience would reap abounding grace. Jesus was not saying that the only sign of his ministry would be that he would die and sit in the grave. He was saying that what we saw God do through Jonah for the people of Nineveh, he was going to do an even greater thing in his time and through his death and through his life. 
So the truth is that you and I here in this room right now, we are here because of the work of Jesus, because of his death, because of the sign of Jonah, because his ministry and his sacrifice extended way past what we thought and expected that he would do. We are the sign to this generation of the abounding grace of God that is wide and deep. And the band can go ahead and come up. I see Angie standing back there. Um, And I wanna read this from Ephesians 2, 4 through 10 that says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not for yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of, us, ahead of time for us to do. Now that last verse is basically our missional verse here at Grace Marietta, that we were created and called to do this important work for the kingdom. But see what comes right before it, that we would not be able to do this work without God's grace, his mercy on us through Jesus Christ to equip us to do this work. A grace that is meant to speak, like it says here, so that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace to us in Christ Jesus. This is our legacy from Jesus. This is our inheritance, that we are meant to be the sign to the people of this generation and generations to come of God's abounding grace. So the question becomes, what are we supposed to do with this legacy of grace? We have to look for those in our lives, those people that we think are beyond it, who are beyond healing, who are beyond receiving from God, the ones we've given up on, the ones that we think couldn't be farther from him, because this is where we will do the work that God began in Jonah and continued in Jesus and commissioned us to do through the Holy Spirit. So that's the question that I have to leave with you this morning. Who is that in your life? Who feels so beyond the grace of God that it would take his supernatural power to change your mind and your heart to reach out for them and extend this abounding grace and love? And what is holding you back from being the voice that declares that grace over them? At this time, we're gonna enter into a time of prayer and a time of communion. And as you sit with the Lord, I just want you to spend some time thanking him. Thank him for this gift of grace that he has extended to you this gift, this legacy of grace that he's given all of us to impart as we go about our lives to those around us. So this time you can go get communion. If you have prayer that you want, the the prayer team will be in the back and on the sides and just go and sit with God and just thank him for his everlasting grace.